Well, good morning once again. I'd invite you to take your Bibles or a copy of whatever contains the Scriptures and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I really just want to read five verses to you. And I want to tease out five things from these five verses and talk about our calling. I've been saying uh, for a while that I was going to introduce a series called Who's Your One? And this is that day. So we're going to talk about Who's Your One? And we're going to begin with Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Father, we're grateful uh, for this day. We're grateful for your goodnesses to us. We're grateful that uh, you allowed us to gather together freely, uncoerced. You allowed us to study your word during the week, uh, to recap it and discuss the implications of it in the first hour that we gathered, the Sunday school hour. And we're grateful for those who regularly gather to do that. And Father, we thank you also for allowing us uh, this worship time you are the audience, we're the participants, and we offer up to you for your enjoyment a thank offering of praise. And now, Father, we gladly sit at your feet as you minister to us from your word. You speak to our hearts and instruct us and in how to more expertly walk out that which you are working into our lives. And so, Father, we ask uh, that you might still our hearts we don't want to wander off, but we want to be attentive to you, showing how valuable you are to us. And we also want uh, to receive with meekness what you say, uh, allowing your spirit to use your word to shape the character of Christ in us, that we may walk after him. So, Father, we would ask additionally that Satan might have no part in what takes place, that he'll be bound and hindered so that your word may be presented freely. And we ask that you will strengthen us to not only receive it with meekness, but to obey what you say. And we pledge, even before we hear it, that we will give you the praise and the honor and the thanksgiving. Now we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Who's your one? I want to begin with a very familiar story. 
I've shared this story with you before, some of you. Uh, but I want to, well, let me hit this button because, you know, we want to count the, do the countdown. I want to share it again. It's a fish story. And it goes like this. It says, now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to go fishing. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for the new and better definition of fishing. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing, such as the new fishing equipment, fish calls, and whether any new bait was discovered. These fishermen built large and beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what is needed is a board which could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. Well, the board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived, large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing and to see far away places where the founding fathers did great fishing in centuries past. They lauded the, fish, the faithful fishermen of years before who handed down the idea of fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, and off they went to foreign lands to teach fishing. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen clubs. They anguished over those who were not committed enough to attend the weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't catch fish were really not fishermen no matter how much they claim to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Is one following if he isn't fishing? I want to talk to you this morning. I said the, the topic is who's your one. And I want to make a proposal to you that one of the things I want to challenge you to do this year is to pray and ask the Lord, who? Who is that one person 
that one individual that God would bring my way, or perhaps me to go their way, uh, that I could engage and develop a relationship with and so reflect Christ that I'm able to draw them into a saving relationship with Christ and bring them into the fellowship of the body of Christ. Who's your one? I want to challenge you this year. Don't think about all of the the millions out there who need Christ. Think about the one that God would have you to reach. God wants us to be disciples. And as I said to you often and often and often, discipleship is what the church does. It's not something the church does. It is what the church does. So, Before we delve into the text, let me do a bit of an excursus and talk about the importance of discipleship. Let me give you a definition. I borrowed this, I almost said stole, but I borrowed this from the American Heritage Dictionary. Disciple is one who subscribes to the teaching of a master and assists in spreading them. An active adherent as of a movement of philosophy Often a disciple is one of the companions of Christ. I like Christopher Adsit's statement, a disciple is a person in process who is eager to learn and apply the truths that Jesus Christ teaches him or her, which will result in ever-deepening commitment to a Christ-like lifestyle. So that I I know Christ and then I grow in Christ and then I'm able to show Christ to others and gain a hearing for Christ. We think about discipleship. We talk about disciple making and disciple making is the whole process or full spectrum of reaching the lost with the gospel, then discipling them or training them to walk in the intimacy and walk with Christ. And those two words are highlighted because the intimacy with Christ, I think that's where many uh, struggle because we don't have the power to walk with Christ because we really aren't intimate with him. We don't spend time with him. And then to walk in his ways and then to equip others to go out and reproduce the process. He also talks about life to life, the dynamic of sharing the reality of Christ and the truth of Scripture through a personal relationship. That is, God wants me uh, not just to, I mean, if you leave tracks on the table when you go out to um, eat or whatever, if you happen to drop stash leave, gospel literature all over the place. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not taking shots at you for doing that. But what I want to say is the best and most effective witness for Christ is a life that reflects Christ. And that's what God wants. He, he, wants, me, he wants me to show Christ, not just to give lip service to my love for Christ. And so I want to be involved in that. Why is discipleship so important, folks? Let me give you three quick reasons. Number one, it's the most important work in the church. 
because it's the means that God has chosen. It is the means that God has chosen. It is the means that God has chosen. Matthew 28, uh, verses 19 and 20, you know all power, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And then he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. And he says, lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. So this is the, the work that Christ has given to the church, and that's why we gather together. Second, it is the method that is most effective. It's the method that is most effective. And some of you probably have seen this before, the principle of spiritual multiplication. And it kind of goes like this. I know you may not be able to see all of that. I mean, it looks easier to see right there unless you're sitting way at the back, okay? But, you know, I'll read it to you. If you were to witness for six months and reach one person and then disciple him or her for the next six months, at the end of the first year, there will be two of you. (laughs) Then, if both of you reach one person each and disciple them, at the end of year two, there will be four growing, reproducing Christians. If the four of you each prayerfully continue this lifestyle of witness and follow-up, you could impact the world for Christ in one brief lifetime. And if you go across, you would see that in the first year, there are two people, right? Year two, there are four people. Year four, though, I'm skipping some years, there'd be 16. Six years, there'd be 64. Eight years, 256. You said, but eight years, and this is all we have. Ten years, 1,024 12 years, 4,096. 13 years, 8,192. Fast forwarding 20 years, there'd be over a million. 48,576. After 30 years, there'd be a billion. 73,741,824. After 32 years, there would be over 4 billion. And the next year, 33 years, there'd be more people, one, than there are in our planet. Jesus lived how long? 33 years. And if the method that he instilled in his disciples were judiciously followed by us, you know, we could reach our world in the same length of time that Jesus walked the face of the earth. You would think somehow that he was onto something. It doesn't begin uh, with a, a big vision of reaching a whole 8 billion people. It begins with the vision of reaching just one. So my question is, who's your one? Prayerfully consider the answer to that question. The third thing about discipleship is that it is the model that best displays the two most important things that there are. It displays, number one, the power of the gospel. I like Colossians 1, 6, where he says, he's talking about the gospel. He says, this, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is changing lives everywhere, just as it changed yours. The gospel, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the fact that people are born bound in sin, And there's nothing they can do about it in and of themselves. 
You can't save yourself. You don't have the ability, the power, the wisdom, or the desire to do so. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and Christ in his mercy and love came to rescue you. He came, he says, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Because he cares about people. And so, of course, when people come to faith in Christ, when they recognize, listen, my life rots. I mean, let's be honest, right? I'm not going anywhere. I was able to share the gospel with um, this couple. Um, and as I sat there, I, I went to the gospel with them. I, I said, I said, would you, would you like to receive Christ? And she said to me, uh, she said, well, you know, I, I really haven't done that good of a job with my life. I might as well turn my life over to Jesus. I thought, what a great, and then she looked at her boyfriend and said, well, and he said, well, yeah, me too. I said, yeah, all right. So two for one that day. But anyway, you know, her life was changed after she received Christ. And when you think about it, think about the people who are terminally ill. And you say to the terminally ill person, listen, there, there, is, there is a remedy for you that will heal you. But, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you more money to spend in your last days or I'm going to give you a promotion or I'm going to surround you with some more you know we, we give them things but the most important thing that they need is, is the remedy for the biggest problem that they have they don't have a knowledge problem or an education problem or a financial problem or a racial problem listen they have a sin problem and there's only one remedy for sin and that's the blood of Jesus if you receive Christ as Savior and Lord, the only reason you're sitting here saved is because the gospel changed your life. And because you know that that's true, then as you interface with other people who need a life change, then you're able to tell them that there is one who died for you. who would, who would He gave his life for you and he beckons you to give your life to him. The person of God's son is best displayed by discipleship because as Paul says in Colossians, as you receive that you've accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to him. Let your roots grow down and draw up nourishment from him. See, that's that, that's that intimacy. You're spending time with Christ, you know. The, the guy doesn't say to the girl, I, I, I love you dearly. I can't, can't stand till we are together again. I, I count the hours, the minutes, the seconds. They're so precious. I'll see you Friday. Well, I mean, if it doesn't rain, right? <laughs> That's not commitment. And we can't say, yes, I love Jesus. And when's the last time you spent time with him? Well, you know, ain't nobody got time for that. Okay. All right. He says, if, you, if your roots grow down into him, if you draw nourishment from him, you'll grow strong in, in faith. Then you'll be vigorous in your faith. And then you'll have something significant to share. So discipleship is important. And I think that discipleship is crucial. And I think that we should spare no effort to be Christ's disciples. And having said all of that, let's, let's look at this text. 
The title is On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And that talks about the fact that Christ came to make disciples. Look at these verses here. Well, before that, let me, let me give you, a, just give me about four or five minutes to talk about. I put three phases in the life of, of Jesus, three phases. I want you to notice this because it, it speaks to my heart and I trust to your heart as we think about our lives, as we follow Jesus. Notice that after Jesus was baptized in chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights after he was hungry, now the tempter came to him saying, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to a holy, uh, into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, okay, you're going to quote scripture. I know some scripture too. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, well, it's written again. Also, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, get lost, Satan. Okay, I know your text says away with away with you, Satan. But, you know, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and worship him only. And then after that, it says the devil left him. Now, now I think about the life of Jesus. And I put these three phases because I want you to think about your life in, in comparison to his life. I mean, we're not Christ, right? But notice Christ, three phases in his life. The first phase was his own personal makeup. See, Christ, he, he faced the battle against Satan right against sin against selfishness you know all the kingdom of the world i give them to you he says no to all of these things those are the things that we struggle with we we struggle we have this internal struggle with sin right we have this external struggle with the world offering us things that don't satisfy we we have this daily daily struggle this battle with significance and selfishness, putting our will and ways ahead of others and God. And that's a struggle. And Jesus, when assaulted by Satan with all of those things, he cast them all aside because what he did is he stood on the scriptures. And when Christ quoted the scriptures, it doesn't mean that if you quote scripture, the devil will leave you alone. No, what he's saying is Christ said, well, listen, this is what the word of God says. And so if this is what the word of God says, I mean, that settles it for me. Your temptation means nothing to me because, because this is what God says. What God says is more important than what you say and what you want. And when he quotes scripture to Satan, and Satan realizes, okay, he's grounded in that truth. He's not going to move. Let me try something else. And that's what he does. When, when you take a stand on what God says, 
then Satan, he has, he has nothing to come at you with. But now if you say, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Hmm. Really? And you begin to make inquiries, you, you're, in, you're in bad shape. You're in big trouble. But Christ, he faced these things, and, and that's a significant statement. Because the writer of Hebrews says that Christ, he was in all points tempted just like we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus is able to, the scripture says, come to the aid of those who are being bothered and buffeted by temptation. He knows what you're facing. He's been there, done that, and overcome. And he's able to take you and lead you to victory. Only Jesus can do that. Then his public ministry was the second phase of his life where he began preaching and teaching. And that's verses 12 through 17 after John the Baptist was beheaded or he was arrested, excuse me. Um, Then uh, Christ, he began his public ministry and he began by preaching and teaching the gospel. And then the third aspect is the one we see here in verses 18 through 22. The third aspect of his life, we could have said preparation, public ministry, pupil making, and pupil making is discipleship. He's reproducing himself in the lives of others. He's raising up disciples. I put that in your face because I, I wanted to show you this little uh, chart. I told my wife that I was I was thinking about um, doing a, a, a state of the church message, and she said, "Yeah, I know you're just gonna put some charts up there." And so, because I love my wife and I don't ever want her to be wrong about anything, <laughs> I deliberately chose to put this chart up here <laughs> just so she could say, "I knew it, I knew it." I mean, that's that's all that's about, really. But anyway, this this little group of circles says to me that just like Christ, he he had to prepare himself in his private life. You know, he faced Satan and whooped him. And then in his public life, or excuse me, in his personal life where he's surrounded by people, but he's teaching and he's preaching and he's sharing. And then in his public life, He's calling and making disciples. And in my life, I need to pay attention to my private space where I'm spending time alone with God. And then my personal space where I'm surrounded by others and we we group together to study and hold one another accountable and pray and fellowship. We need each other. And then in public, there are people around us that don't know Christ, that God wants us to call into a relationship with Christ, just like Jesus. So then, we look at these verses. Verse 18, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore, he saw the two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, fishing with a net because they were commercial fishermen. And he says to them, come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. I'll show you how to catch men. 
And they left their nets at once and went with him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, to, to help us get a, a, a little insight into what's going on here, here's the way things typically happen with Hebrew boys. All Hebrew boys went to Torah school starting at age, age five, you know, the bar mitzvah, age five. And so they spent five years studying Torah, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, the five books of Moses. By age 10, all young boys knew the Torah. And the best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. And the rest of them went home to work in their family businesses. Now, at about age 17, you finish studying the rest of the Old Testament. If you want to go on and make a career out of religious studies, then your next step was to find a rabbi that you admired and apply to be one of his disciples or um, Talmudim. When you found one, you would go and sit at his feet. Uh, this was your request to learn. In Acts chapter 5, uh, in sharing his testimony in chapter 22, Paul says that he, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a noted um, Jewish scholar and disciple maker. But in sitting at his feet, he was saying, I was educated, I was trained, discipled by this man. That's how you would do. And then the rabbi would examine you with questions and put you through a series of tests to see if you were worthy to be his disciple. And then the rabbi would choose the smartest, most talented boys to be their disciples. That was a very important point. The rabbis were picky when they did this because when they chose a disciple, they were choosing someone they believed could become just like them. To not just know what they knew, but to do what they did. And that's why you chose disciples. For several years, these young disciples would follow their rabbis. They would go about with them and imitate them in every way. The goal of a disciple was to be like the rabbi. And that's what's going on here. And that's, that's significant. Because what I want you to notice about this, when you look at verse 18, it says, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. And it says they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Now, what does that tell us? That, that tells us that, listen, uh, these boys, they had gone... To, to school at five to be uh, to study Torah and then at ten <laughs> um, they weren't the best of the best so they went back to work with their fathers in the fishing business they, they weren't the best and the brightest and that's the first thing I want us to consider listen who does Jesus call he doesn't call the best and the brightest he he chooses those who are willing to follow him. 
They, he, he didn't choose you. I'm, I'm sorry, not to insult your intelligence. Because you were so incredibly good looking. And undoubtedly smart and brilliant. That's not why he chose you. He chooses people on the basis of willingness. And he, he called you. And, and he called all of us. And listen, um, I mean, I don't know where you finish in, in your ranking. <laughs> Maybe you were at the top. My kids were near the top of their class, but they didn't get that from their father because their father was nowhere near the top of his class, you know. But anyway, he chose us because we were willing to come to him, not because we were so dynamic. Paul says in Philippians, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians, he says, he says, consider your calling. <laughs> he says, uh, Few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you, right? Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. He chose those who are, here's a list of qualifications for church membership, right? He chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can boast in the presence of God. God God chose me because, you know what, there ain't nothing special about me. He chose me because, he says, when I make something out of him, everybody's going to know it was me, especially the folk that grew up with him. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that is Ray Smith, <laughs> right? That's why he chose me, because he could display his glory through me, not because there's anything special about me. Now, that's just true about me. Maybe that's not true about you, but it is. I mean, you know. Not only that, but notice he... He says to them, verse 19, he says, follow me and, and I will make you fishers of men. He says the same thing to the sons of Zebedee. He called them to follow him. See, the, the, the difference is, unlike the guys who read 17 and said, I want to study the rest of the, the, the I want to make a career out of this. I'm going to choose the best and the brightest. I'm going to choose the, the best rabbi, and I'm going to go to him and ask him if I could be his disciple. No. These men, they weren't looking to be disciples. They didn't choose to go after Christ. Christ chose to go after them. Christ decided to, to choose them. See, he, he chose us. We didn't choose him. No one seeks for God. But God came and he looked at me. He looked at you and he says, I, I want that one. I told you about the couple who they had a son, Eric, and then um, they, they adopted another son. And Eric had the little mean streak. And so when his little brother, when his brother would do things, he remind him. 
you know, you don't belong in this family anyway. You were adopted. And hurt his little brother's heart. So he'd go crying to his parents. And Russell and the Irish, they said, they took him aside. They said, listen, the next time he says that to you, say to him, listen, they had you, but they chose me. And shut his mouth up. Listen, God chose me. He didn't have to. He decided that he wanted to. And he made me precious in his sight. He said, you didn't choose me. I told you and appointed you to go and bring forth fruit. Then I want you to notice. He says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and and they, they followed him. And the thing is, remember now, what the Jewish students would do with the rabbi is they would go with him everywhere he went. They would hear his teaching, and they would see what he did, and they would imitate his ways. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If nothing else, it means to be with him, to go where he goes and to learn from him so that you can imitate You see, our our primary calling is to be with him. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that that, that God has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 3, got this great verse. You may not be able to, well, maybe you can see that. Jesus went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he wanted (laughs) and they came to him. And then he appointed 12, notice, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Before he ever sent them anywhere, uh, he called them to be with him, to spend time with him, to hang out with him. To, to see what he said and or to hear what he said and see what he did and, and to begin to imitate his ways. In fact, when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, as they were querying them about them having healed a man, they, it says they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. They could tell. So you, you talk like him. You, you have this boldness like him. You, you, you ooze of Jesus. We used to, we used to do this skit um, based on the, the song Evidence. And um, the song basically says if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to, to convict you? <laughs> and so we did a skit based on that with our youth group back in the day, you know. And, you know, it was, it's funny because people looked at the skit and they, they laughed. You know, it's funny. You know, you, a person said, well, I'm a member of a church. And they said, I object, Your Honor. Church membership doesn't mean that you're a follower of Christ sustained, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just because you're a member doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You know, a lot of people join churches. And, you know, we just kind of spoofed all of those things, teased them all out. Because our, our goal was just to make the point that my life ought to reflect Christ. 
that if I can go on my job, if, if I'm like the little girl who asked her mom if she could go to this party, and the mom said, well, listen, do you think that's appropriate for you to go? I mean, after all, you're a Christian. And her response was, that's okay, mom. I promise if you let me go, nobody will know. Sometimes, you know, we are undercover. Or so we say we are. But we, we want to be with him and imitate him. And then it, it, we can't help ourselves. Then I want you to notice what happened when he called them. Verse 20, it says, they immediately left their nets. And, and they followed him. They, they, they left. You see, to, to follow Jesus, we have to leave it all behind. I'm not saying that I have to quit my job. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I have to, to quit anything. But Jesus says this in Luke 14. He says, if you want to be my follower, here's the cost. He says, you must love me more than your own father and mother, wife and children brothers and sisters, yes, more than your own life. What? Yeah, he says, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple if you do not carry your own cross and follow me. It's, it's, it's the follower who's the real deal and not the one who says, I'm a fisherman. But they're not evidencing that they are. Verse 33, he sums it up. No one can be my disciple without giving up everything for me. And see, the, the question becomes then, is, is there anything that stands between me and a relationship with Christ? Is there anything that I say, this is more important to me than knowing Christ, than serving Christ, than following Christ? I care more about this than him and if the answer to that is yes he says you, you you can't be my disciple you have to decide which which is more valuable me or this thing i told you before a few weeks back that i told my brother and lovingly so you know when he said he wasn't ready to give up his life and i asked him what in your life do you have that's worth going to hell for and he said nothing I'm just not ready to give it up. I'm like, okay. I left him alone, kept praying for him until the Lord changed his heart. Then he committed his life to Christ. But at that particular point, you know Christ had come back at that point. You know where my brother would be right now? He'd be in hell. You know, having decided that, you know, these things right now are more important than Christ. And if I'm going to follow him, then nothing can be more important. And I don't, I don't know what he has for me. I, I don't know. You know, when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't know I would ever become a pastor. I had no idea. When I came to faith in Christ and I came to ABBC and I sat down and listened to Pastor McNeil preach the word and I thought, man, he just, she needs to just keep going. Keep, just quit the singing. Skip the singing. Just keep going. Give me more of that. And I was just consumed with hearing the word, having the word, studying the word. I had no idea what God was doing in my life. But as he, as he moved me, 
uh, into pharmacy, out of pharmacy, into pharmacy, out of pharmacy. I had no idea. All I could say is that I wanted to please him. In fact, when I decided to go to a seminary and I announced that to the church, one of the teens said to me, Ray, you're going to quit your job and go off to go to seminary? She said, is that what you want to do? I'm like, well, I, I never asked myself that question. The only question I asked myself is, what does God want me to do? And once I became sure that that's what he wanted, then the rest was immaterial. Because I just want to do the thing that he wants me to do. I mean, it just he just shaped that in me. And I'm just naive enough to think that he shapes that in the heart of all those who belong to him. That he just places in in my heart, in my spirit, this, this desire to know him more deeply, more closely, and, and to know his will for my life, not so I can say, I know what the will of God is, so I can do what he wants. So I was willing to, to give it all up for him. The last thing, the last thing, John fifteen eight, he commands us to spiritually reproduce. How do you know when a person has reached maturity? Well, one of the evidences is that, that they're able to reproduce. Well, they, they reach an age where they can reproduce. And this, I think the same is true spiritually. I'm, I'm called to spiritually reproduce. What do I produce? First of all, I, I yield to the Spirit so that he produces in me Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He produces that in me. And because he produced that, then I, I bear that fruit. See? And he says that you bear much fruit. So I need, to, I need to say yes to the Spirit of God as he takes the Word of God and he drives it into my heart and he strengthens me to, to conform my life to the truth of the Word of God. I'm wired to do that. I'm motivated, moved to do that. And I, I want to do that. And then as the Spirit produces his fruit in me and people see it, people are drawn to the fruit of Christ in me. And as they are drawn to that, then I can share with them how they can know Christ in the pardoning of their sins. And then I can help them grow in their faith. And I just, I just want to do that one time, right? So the question is, who's your one? Who is that person that, that God will lay on your heart that, that you, can, you can talk with and, and pray for and spend time with and deepen their relationship with so they can see Christ in you and that you can walk with and, and guide them Right to faith in Christ. And then you can bring them into a growth environment where they can be surrounded by people who love them without condition and who will help them grow in their commitment to Christ. Just one. Who is your one? 
But what's it going to take? Well, I have to count the cost. I have to count the cost. I'll end with this next slide. Sometimes, you know, we're not as careful as we ought to be. Right? Measure to Oops. Right? I, I should have paid more attention before I did what I did. Sometimes it's like that in my life. Maybe there are things that I say. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Listen, I, I, I want to confess to you that there are, there are times in my life when things just aren't as they ought to be. There was a situation where I was working and there was an individual who saw me do something. I, I won't tell you what it was because I'll tell you, you say, oh, is that all? But no, you know, just think about the thing in your life. But I, I did this thing and they were surprised that I did that. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's not something I should have done. And before I could even get to them to talk to them, they left the store. And the last thing I saw them see was what I did. And as it turned out, to my recollection, I never saw them come into our store again. And I said, well, I wonder if they saw what I did and said, well, I, I, you know, I know he's a Christian. I can't believe he did that. And they were so offended that they said, well, I'm never going there again. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could, they could have moved. They could have whatever. I mean, I don't know what I don't know. But what I do know is that, you know, often I would be up preaching and I would think to myself, you know, if the church doors opened up and that individual walked in and saw me up in the pulpit preaching, would they say, oh, no, and turn around and walk back out? I, mean, I thought about that a lot. I'm like, Lord, forgive me. I know. I wish I could just see him again to explain myself and apologize. I wish, but, but I couldn't. You have, to, you have to think carefully about what you do and about what you say because the reputation of Christ is at stake. I want to be careful in my walk so that I could be courageous in my witness. I want to be able to tell any and everyone about the love of Christ and the love I have for Christ and how they can experience that love. I don't want anything to come between them and an honest speech about Christ. My personal mission statement, I said I would end with that, but I'm going to end with this for real. <laughs> Some of you say, oh, man, but I'm going to end with this for real. <laughs> Typical pastor, right? My purpose in life is to grow deeper in my relationship with my Lord. I, I just want to spend time with him. And I want to cooperate with his spirit in becoming more like him in character. And that is, as I spend time with him, reading his word, hearing his voice, 
learning to recognize his voice and seeing his ways. And then as I walk, the Spirit of God will remind me of his ways. And anytime my steps differ from his steps, I want to, of course, correct. I want to become more like him in character. And I want to share the results of that with those in my relationship circles, the people around me. I want them to see Christ in me so that I could help them come to know him. That's, that's why I live. That's, that's my mission statement for life. And I believe that that ought to be everybody's mission statement. <laughs> why else are we here except to know Christ and to make Christ known? Father, thank you so much again. Uh, for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Father, we confess to you, uh, we're unworthy. As Brother Joel mentioned in his prayer, we we don't deserve uh, to be so bountifully endowed with blessings by you. Uh, we, We don't deserve to be fully forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We don't deserve to be enriched by your spirit and given insight into your word and having your wisdom to live skillfully because you give it to us just for the asking. We don't deserve having open access to you so we can pray about all of our circumstances and see your hand move in response to our prayers. We, we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve to be loved so deeply and wonderfully. But we gladly receive it. And Father, thank you for making us a part of something bigger than ourselves. Your kingdom is a great kingdom. And you allow us to be citizens of it. Thank you for allowing us to call you Father. And we're known by your name. Help us. Help us to think long and hard about the ones around us living out their lives under death's sentence who trying to figure out which way is up. What they really need is a heart change. And only Jesus can bring that. Strengthen us with with the boldness, but a, a wisdom to know how to be approachable as well as coachable. For the Father, uh, we might reveal Christ in all this splendor. Pray again for those who may be with us or under the sound of my voice who cannot say in all honesty that they've received Christ as Savior and Lord. They've not submitted to him. They've not invited him in to take up his rightful place as the Lord of their lives. I pray for them, Father. Open their eyes to see the folly of trying to live life, your life, on their own terms. Give them the wisdom to say no to the folly of this world, which is only temporary anyway, that they may embrace the eternal forgiveness and love and the riches of Christ beginning right now and continuing forever. Strengthen them. Help us to be witnesses. Show us the one for this year. We'll ask these things and thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.